As far as the words go, um, it's not, I confess, the most rousing hymn, but that hymn is the best statement of justification in our hymnal. Romans chapter 1 verse 17 is the sermon text this morning. We consider the power of God last week. To all who believe here, we consider the righteousness of God imputed to all who have faith. So I'll read those two verses together. Verses 16 and 17, which are, as you know, the summary statement and the thesis statement of the epistle. But verse 17 is our focus. The apostle says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to, sal- uh, uh, to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the message of salvation uh, which we call the gospel, the good news of the gospel. And we ask you that as it is now preached, as Paul says, it is meant to be. Uh, it is something, of course, to consider and, and to love and to read about. But its primary uh, function, its primary application is uh, or it occurs within the context of preaching. And now as it, uh, as it will be preached, we ask you, oh God, that it would have its proper effect. And that is namely that there would be faith, that it would be met with the reception of belief, and through that, salvation. Uh, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we're looking at verses 16 and 17 together, uh, but concluding that as a second sermon, uh, I would r- remind you that there's a sequence of thought which is present, and really it goes back to verse 15 and even before that in verse 14. But in verse 15, Paul says that he's eager to preach the gospel. And the reason he's eager to state it, that's verse 15, verse 16, the reason he's eager to preach it is because uh, it's the power of God to salvation. Uh, Well, actually, I skipped a step. He says he's not ashamed. He's eager because he's not ashamed. And the reason he's not ashamed is because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believes. And that's as far as we got last time. But the reason to complete now the sequence as we come to verse 17, that it is the power of God uh, to salvation for all who believes. And Paul is so confident of this that he's eager to preach and he's not ashamed. Is because in the gospel, that is in the preaching of the gospel, is contained or revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith. Verse 17. And that is the statement now which we are considering. What uh, he says about God's righteousness in verse 17, as I just indicated last time we looked at God's power in verse 17, but really, or verse 16, really, uh, we have to keep both ideas close at hand because uh, one is an expression of the other. The righteousness is an expression of the power. And so if you understand the righteousness of God, which is revealed in the gospel, you will understand the power of God in the gospel to save. You will see why the gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe to the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 16 But if you fail to grasp this single concept, namely the righteousness of God, if your conception of the gospel is devoid of an understanding of the righteousness of God, then you really possess nothing in your hand. You will fail utterly not only to grasp what the gospel is, since the gospel is a revelation of the righteousness of God, 
from faith to faith. But you will also grasp at the same time what the gospel is capable of. You will fail to see what it affects by its power, namely salvation. And so uh, the main idea here in verse 17, which I hope to unfold in the sermon, is simply that the gospel is the power of God because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel is the power of God because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And I want to begin very obviously and naturally with a definition of righteousness, since that is the term uh, which we are considering. And I wonder how easily you could define it. I'm not sure that you could, and I'm not necessarily faulting you for that. I don't know how often we stop and we define this word righteousness. I confess that that I had to think about it a little bit uh, to come up with my own definition. And yet I would say there's no term more important from the standpoint of the New Testament and, uh, and that of the gospel than the idea of righteousness. The gospel is said to be the power of God unto salvation to all believe, to all who believe. How so? Insofar as it reveals the righteousness of God. And so again, you can never understand the gospel, what it is, or how it is powerful to save, until you see how God's righteousness is revealed in it and brought to bear upon the human situation. God's righteousness powerfully brought to bear upon the human situation. That is how salvation is conceived in the New Testament. Well, what is righteousness? It is a legal term. Now, uh, those of you who have been attending Sunday school, I think, will be greatly helped here because we've been considering this. We are thinking of uh, God's courtroom. And if you realize that at the end of your life and at the end of the age, the very thing you have to face is the judgment of God, the final judgment. Suddenly, that brings into focus the necessity of the issues here. Question is, am I righteous in God's courtroom? And what will the last day reveal about me? And so it has to do with law, God's law in particular, not man's law. Of course, righteousness can have to do with man's law, but the righteousness we are considering has to do with God's law. It is, it is a, uh, a standard or God's law is a standard which we are meant to live up to. And the man who lives up to that standard is said to be righteous. The man who keeps the law is righteous. He does what is right. But because, on the other hand, he does not do this because there is no one who keeps the law and all are lawbreakers. They are unrighteous. That's the other side of the coin. Let me also stress here, as we're considering God's law and the standard which is set forth in the law, a standard once more, which if you live up to. If you always do what is right, then you are righteous. The standard which is set forth in that law is nothing less than perfection. Nothing less. Nothing less than perfection can be considered true obedience or righteousness. To be guilty of one single transgression, of breaking a single point of the law, is to be guilty of the whole, James tells us. James chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says something similar in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Our Lord, in summarizing the law, having gone through several of the commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, tells us that you shall therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is, once again, the standard which is set forth in the law. 
And anyone who is acquainted with the law or taken any amount of time to allow the law to be his guide and to rule his conscience will discover this about himself. Not a sense of personal righteousness, but of unrighteousness. Though I keep a hundred commands, I break a hundred besides. But you see, even if I were just to break the one, the verdict and the sentence of the law is guilty. So that's the standard and the question which we have is, have any lived up to it? And this is something which Paul will later say. Has the Gentile who doesn't have the law, has he lived up to it? Or what about the Jew who has the law? Has he lived up to it? And his conclusion is ultimately in chapter 3, verse 10, that there isn't a single one. None is righteous, no, not one. And that becomes the great argument of the early portion of the book of Romans as we get to the next verse. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. The whole focus of that section is simply none are righteous. No, not one. Every one of us falls short of the standard which is held forth in God's law. Closely connected to the idea of righteousness is justification. And what does that mean? Well, if you look at the word justification in the Greek, it is actually the verbal form of the noun righteous. And so justification means to render a verdict of righteous or righteousness. The person who is justified in God's courtroom is the person whom God regards as righteous. And as a result of that, Someone who stands in a position of favor and blessedness with God, as opposed to the opposite, which is standing in a position of condemnation and wrath and even hatred. Another thing that should be said about this concept of righteousness is uh, Buchanan, James Buchanan points out in his book on justification, which will uh, beginning at this point in many ways become my companion text in the book of Romans and unfolding this doctrine of justification, much as Hugh Martin was uh, my companion text uh, in uh, unfolding the priesthood of Christ in the book of Hebrews, along with the commentaries. One of the things that Buchanan says, speaking now of justification or the declaration or verdict that one is righteous in God's courtroom, is that there are two methods of justification which are found in Scripture. And one is, let us see, the justification of the righteous. That is a biblical uh, model or method of justification, which can only be found in a single instance, and that was the instance of Adam. As Adam uh, was... Uh, not only made, but placed in the garden and under certain arrangement, which we call the covenant of works, it was, uh, there was for him held forth the possibility of his justification through the law or through his own obedience. Again, we call that the covenant of works. And if Adam had fulfilled the terms of the covenant of works, if he had been obedient instead of transgressed the law, then he would have been justified by his obedience. And he would have stood in a position of of favor and blessedness with the Lord. We know what happened. It was the opposite. It was through transgression that sin came in. But not only sin and death, but condemnation. The opposite verdict was rendered. That of guilty. But the other, uh, which we are familiar with, that we discover not only about Adam once he fell, but everyone ever since, once sin entered into the world, 
is the justification of sinners, which uh, deals with the issue of how it is a sinner will be or can be regarded by God as righteous. And that is exactly the question which the gospel proposes to answer. How it is that God proposes to reconcile man who is alienated to him through sin to himself and then to regard him once more as he or one who is righteous, bringing him again into a status or position of favor and acceptance. It's not a question I'll answer just yet. Again, how does God justify the sinner? How does he justify the righteous? The answer is through his obedience. But how does he justify the sinner? For now, let us see. As we're uh, just trying to answer the single question, what is meant by righteousness, that with regard to righteousness, man is totally devoid of it. There isn't a single righteous person in this room. There isn't a single righteous person ever since Adam, save Jesus, who ever lived in the world. And there won't be a single righteous person that will will ever live after us. And so man, uh, with respect to God's courtroom, rather than being justified by his obedience to the law, is utterly condemned by his disobedience. Man as a sinner stands under the awful sentence of condemnation and is subject to the wrath of God. And that's, again, what Paul says at the conclusion of his argument in Romans chapter 3, the argument which begins in chapter 1, verse 18. That there isn't a single righteous person. No, not one. And that is a verdict that applies equally to Jews and Gentiles. It uh, it applies to everyone equally. There isn't a single man in the whole world who has found righteousness by his own obedience to the law. There isn't a single man who will be able to stand on the last day about whom God will say, You are righteous. But rather, man discovers something else through the law. That will be revealed on the last day, and that's that he is guilty. Now we know this is what Paul says at the end of this argument in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. That's the point. No one is justified by the law. All are held guilty. Well, that's the first point. But with that general definition given... We must realize that the righteousness in view in verse 17 of chapter 1 of the book of Romans is not that of man. It is actually uh, the righteousness of God that we are called to consider. The righteousness of God which is revealed. And it concerns us to know what is meant by that. Well, for one thing, we know that God is righteous. I've just been saying that man is unrighteous, but in contrast to man, God is righteous. He lives a life of of perfect conformity to all that is right and good. In other words, God always does what is right. He never does what is wrong. He never sins, nor can he ever sin. Because God is a righteous being. And so righteousness is something uh, that we call an attribute of God, something that belongs to him as part of his character, eternally so, and something that can never change or something that can never uh, be untrue of God. It is always true that God is righteous, even if not of man. And so if we speak of the unrighteousness of man, it is still appropriate to speak of the righteousness of God. And that is precisely what the gospel reveals to an unrighteous man. It reveals the righteousness of God. 
But this fact, let us see, has a way of determining his reaction and his disposition to sinful man. Connected to the righteousness of God, and as an obvious consequence of it, is his wrath. Which is why Paul immediately goes on to say, having said that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The very next statement he makes in verse 18 is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. In other words, what he's saying, and as we'll go on to consider beginning next week, is that one of the ways, and indeed the primary way, at least in terms of order, that God's righteousness is revealed from heaven is against sin in wrath. When God's righteousness is revealed, and I'm, I'm about to unfold this a little bit in recounting Luther's experience, when God's righteousness is revealed from heaven, man as a sinner discovers that God is against him, not for him. And it's because God is righteous that this is true and must be true. It's because he's righteous that human sin is so displeasing to him and it must be punished. And so to seek the solution to man's basic dilemma, again, what we call the gospel or salvation, in the direction of the righteousness of God is not immediately reassuring, not in itself. In fact, again, to propose the solution to man's unrighteousness by asserting God's righteousness is quite capable of producing the opposite effect in man. Rather than uh, reassuring him that though he is unrighteous, all will be well because the righteousness of God will be brought to bear upon his situation savingly, but that is true, but it's often the case that such a statement will actually frighten and terrify man. For if the righteousness of God is precisely what my sin offends, so that God must punish it in wrath. And what makes my condemnation certain as one who is unrighteous? How can that thought offer any hope to me who is a sinner? And here is where I want to read a somewhat lengthy autobiographical statement from Luther where he describes, Martin Luther, his conversion experience. And he was dealing with, as he was teaching or lecturing through Romans in Wittenberg in the year 1519, uh, the idea of the righteousness of God. An idea which he says, and uh, for reasons which I just stated, is not all that surprising, I don't think, that he hated it. He read of the righteousness of, a God, of God, and that was not something which filled him with hope, but it filled him with dread. And this is what he said, and you, you, you'll see how when he was able to understand this phrase properly, suddenly he not only became a Christian, but he, came, he, he became uh, mighty Martin Luther, the great preacher of the gospel. He said, I had indeed been captivated with an, an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up till then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single word in the chapter Verse 17, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed that had stood in my way. For I hated that word righteousness of God, which, according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. 
Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. Again, he stopped at this verse until he could grasp it. And then he did begin to grasp it. He says, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live here. I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself. Through open gates. Notice the sequence. And notice how everything hinged upon the single phrase. And Luther rightly singled out that single phrase. And he asked precisely in what sense is God's righteousness revealed in the gospel? At first he hated it. He felt as though God was adding something worse in the gospel than was found in the law. Man is beaten down through the law. Now he must be finished with the gospel. That's what Luther thought. But then he came to love it. Why? Because he discovered that what was really being said there, the the, the righteousness that's being revealed, is not that God's righteousness, uh, the righteousness by which he condemns, but rather that by which he justifies. Of course, God also does condemn in righteousness, but not for the one who has faith for him, for the one who has faith in the gospel. The God, the righteousness of God justifies it frees. It gives life. It is the gift of God, Luther says. And that leads me to the next question, and that is how so? How is it that God justifies the sinner? Well, insofar as it is being revealed again. And that's what he's saying here. The effect of the gospel, especially as it's preached, is that it reveals something. It is itself powerful to save, but that saving power occurs in the context of this revelation. And the thing that the gospel reveals, Paul says, this powerful saving gospel is the righteousness of God. But here again, we must look at verses 16 and 17 in connection with one another. The power to save, verse 16, connected with the revelation of righteousness, verse 17. And this will help us to understand the sense in which it is revealed, savingly. For, as is made clear when these two statements are taken together, the power of God unto salvation occurs just as the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, the revelation of the righteousness 
is how the power of God to save is brought to bear upon the sinner for salvation. And here is where John Murray's comment uh, in his his comments, I mean, in his uh, commentary on Roman, I found very helpful, explaining us the precise sense in which righteousness is revealed. And uh, the word which I'm stressing here or seeking to define is revelation in connection with power and righteousness. And this is what John Murray says. Revelation here by, by revelation here is meant revealed in action and operation. The righteousness of God was to be made manifest with saving effect. That is why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The righteousness of God is redemptively active, let us underline. It is redemptively active in the sphere of human sin and ruin. In other words, it isn't by revelation God just making his mind plain to us, revealing to us an idea that we're able to to consider and even to believe. It is that, but it's something more. It is that idea brought to bear savingly and powerfully in your life. The power of God is revealed. The question is, how so? How does God's righteousness become active unto my salvation? Revealed to me in such a way that I'm actually saved. In other words, where is that righteousness found? Well, let me just say that it isn't found in the law. Well, it is found there, but not the power to save, though his righteousness might be found there. What I find in the law is something else, not salvation, but condemnation. The law reveals the righteousness of God who is against me. But Paul says the glory of the gospel is that it reveals the same righteousness of God in another way. So that now it is found to be for me, not against me, working powerfully to save. Again, the same righteousness that I found in the law, which condemned only now it saves. This is what he says in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25. But now, he has just said, under the law all have been found guilty before God. Verse 19, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Paul is saying, That there at the cross of Calvary, the righteousness of God is revealed in another way. It is made available to me in its saving power so that it actually saves me. He tells us that all have fallen short, verse 23, all are guilty. But God nevertheless manifests his righteousness in another way at the cross. There is made, uh, Christ is made, he says, verse 25, he's made my propitiation. Which means he takes my sin to the cross and he deals with it there. He reckons with the wrath of God. The law that demands the sinner be punished is there satisfied once for all. Which is, he says again, a dying and bleeding savior on the cross. It is above all a revelation of the righteousness of God. Which is the power of God to save. 
God's just method of justifying sinners. Verse 26. Not only that. It is also located or revealed, uh, I mean, in his life. The revelation of the righteousness of God is found in all of Jesus' doing and all of his dying. And here we're looking at his doing. When Jesus came into the world, he kept the law perfectly. Never once for a single moment or a single point did he fail to keep the law perfectly. He obeyed it as a man in my place. And so he achieved a true righteousness by the law. And so he came not just to pay the penalty that the law demanded, but equally to offer the obedience which it required. And so he fulfilled its every demand. There was no claim which the law placed upon me as a sinner that he did not perfectly fulfill for me. But note, he didn't need it. He had no need to suffer for sin, for he had none. Nor had he any need to live righteously, for he is the very embodiment of righteousness as the son of God. But all this he did for me. It was an act of immeasurable love, the doing and dying of Jesus. And what did he accomplish as a result? Well, he achieved, achieved, excuse me, a true righteousness by which we are justified. A righteousness leading to justification. Romans chapter 3 verse 24 Paul says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 4 verse 25, who was delivered over because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Or Romans chapter 5 verse 19. And you see, I'm just giving you a sample of what Paul is going to tell us in this book. How Christ achieved a righteousness for us. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, that is Adam. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Or in other words, they will be justified. And that is Christ. In every way, Paul tells us, or or he'll go on to tell us, Christ has achieved a righteousness which is met with divine approval, with divine favor. And by faith in the gospel of Christ, that righteousness becomes mine through imputation. God now regards me, if I have faith, As one who is righteous and all that is his becomes mine. And so Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. There he is expressing my relationship to the righteousness which is revealed in the gospel. Which we see the righteousness of God is specifically the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As revealed in the gospel. But I only have access to that savingly by faith. Emphasizing what he later says. He says from faith to faith. He's emphasizing uh, chapter 3 verse 22. We find him saying even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. From faith to faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It makes it available. It tells us that the righteousness of God is brought to bear upon the sinner savingly so that he might stand on the last day and be declared and counted righteous in the divine courtroom to all who have faith. And this is nothing new, Paul says. It was always true. He'll go on to tell us that in Romans chapter 4, for instance. It was true of Abraham. It was true of David in the Old Testament. 
And so as he quotes Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, one of the Old Testament prophets, he's just reminding us that that has always been the case. Ever since man fell into sin, the only way that he could be justified before God was by faith. And really, you see, it could not be otherwise. Once we see what the gospel is, it is an announcement. It is a proclamation. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul was so eager to preach. It was a declaration of God's powerful righteousness found at the cross of Christ. And in preaching it, this power to save was brought to bear upon those who hear. But you see, if that is the case, if it is a matter of God's power and God's righteousness being revealed, then man has nothing left to boast about. There's no room left for man to claim any credit that he's done anything to achieve salvation. The message of the gospel is rather that God has done all and that this is how he has done it. And so there's no left and no room left for man to contribute or add anything to this. There's nothing left, in other words, for man to do anything but to believe the message, to accept that God has done it in my place and that he's offering it to me. And that is the final statement that whoever believes it truly will be saved by it. He will be justified freely by his grace. God will regard his person as righteous as surely as if he were righteous himself. And the gospel will become to him power to save. And so you find faith being stressed in both verses, verses 16 and 17. It is the power of God to save to all who believe. And in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, perhaps here I might offer a final definition as I close. And that is what is meant by faith. Who is the man who has faith? If Paul is saying that God will justify the man who has faith. And I think there's only one way to answer this. And that is the man who hears this message and he accepts it gladly. He understands that God is righteous and that God is telling him that the way for him to be righteous is not through the law, but it is by another to look to look for righteousness and find true righteousness in the cross of Christ and in the life of Christ. To look for righteousness, in other words, nowhere but in this person, Jesus Christ, whom the gospel reveals in his person and in his life and in his death and so on. It is the person who says, therefore, I would not seek to be righteous by the law. I would not seek to be regarded as righteous before God by my own achievement, but who says Christ is my righteousness. Christ, as he is revealed in the gospel. That is the man who has faith. Add to this the fact that this faith assures him of the love of God. It brings him into the presence of the Father. It gives him confidence to face God on the last day. All of this is involved in what it is to have faith in the gospel. But then as I close, and all this being true, the only question I have for you is do you have faith? Have you believed the gospel? Seeing the gospel is what it is, this amazing display of power and love and righteousness, have you believed it? Have you found almost to your own wonder that you really do believe it, even while others are too ashamed to say so? Or let me put it like this. Is there anything more wonderful than the gospel? Can anything possibly be better than this? 
that God should justify us freely by his grace. We who are sinners, we who are transgressors and lawbreakers, that the penalty that I deserve should be laid upon his own dear son. And if that is true, can there be anything in the whole world that could ever convince me that God does not love me or that he would overturn this verdict of justification? You see, I'm just anticipating the future arguments, especially once we come to chapter eight. The question is, am I convinced of this? Has the gospel persuaded me that the God who is against me in the law revealed in righteousness is now for me? Has the gospel convinced me of that? Do I believe truly that I am reconciled to God through the righteousness and through the blood of Jesus Christ? Another way to put this. Do you love God? Do you love the father? Or are you still afraid of him? Is the spirit of adoption at work in you causing you to cry out, Abba, father? All who are led by the spirit. These are indeed the sons of God. Paul tells us Romans chapter eight, verse 14 is the spirit who is the spirit of adoption, who causes us to love the father. But you see, and Romans will force us to see all of this is involved in believing the gospel. All of these things will be true of the man who believes it. But all that is left, uh, all that, I mean, all that I've been saying, all these future arguments are left for us to consider as we go on to read and to unfold and to hear sermons on the book of Romans. For now, I ask you once more, do you have faith? And let me read those two verses once more. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Amen. And let us come now to the table.